I'm glad to be with you. Uh, if you do not know me or if I have either grown a beard or it's shorter than the last time you saw me, uh, I'm Robert. I've uh, been uh, hanging around here at Center Church with my wife Heather and our kids for about a year and a half and recently came on to do some administrative work here. So it's fun to have the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning uh, for the message. Uh, we've been in a larger, uh, larger series called The Big Story. And it's a series, it's an opportunity for us to dive into the different texts and stories of Scripture that really be able to get to speak to the whole narrative, the whole understanding of who God is, how the Scripture came together, how does it lead us into the Gospel. Um, it provides us a chance to read the Bible better, uh, make the Bible come alive, provide some understanding to why we preach the way that we do. And so far in the stories that we've tackled this year, um, this series, this year too, it kind of makes sense, it's January, it's 2019, so it's a year as well, um, uh, be able to bring understanding about how is the gospel foreshadowed? Um, how do we get to Jesus? How do we understand um, the gospel? How do we understand that all these happenings throughout scripture end up getting us to the end of scripture? Uh, how they speak and form and inform one another, understand God, understand ourselves in light of who God is and who we are in God. And so I find myself consistently asking myself, where does this bring out the gospel? Where does this foreshadow the gospel? How does it get us to Jesus? And I realized that I had a specific tone every time I heard that question. And if I'm known for anything in my life, I want to be known for outdated movie references um, because that's just where, where, where it happens. And I realized that uh, my voice started sounding a lot like Annie Kinsella, the, re the wife of Ray Kinsella in Field of Dreams, because he has to make a case why Terrence Mann is worth exploring for baseball, and she just constantly rails on him. What's it got to do with baseball? What's it got to do with baseball? And so as I prepare this text, as I understand it, I keep having Annie in my head saying, what's it got to do with Jesus? What's it got to do with the gospel? How does it get us there? Um, and for the 98% that that fell flat on, nice to meet you. Um, it's great. It's a good opportunity. Uh, so the story that we're looking at this week is a story that a lot of you, if you grew up around the church, know well, or if you uh, watched Veggie Tales, or if you grew up with the most iconic cartoon in the Christian world, Superbook Adventures, where a little robot in a special Bible would take two kids back in the Bible and actually get to go experience the story. Don't know if it'd be as cool if it was actually live action as it was when it was animated. Uh, but you've heard this story a lot. You've heard this story told a lot of different ways. And, um, and so for one, one, on one end, that's an exciting opportunity to kind of think through this text. On another end, you have a lot of preconceived notions about what are you bringing to this text. We all think that we have bringing to this text. But I mean, this text is uh, something that's been used in um, normal slang, normal conversation, you know, slay your Goliath, face your giants, all these different dynamics. And so on one end, this is a story that we, a lot of us might know well, but on another end, we have a very, very narrated understanding of it. And so that's kind of the norm that we've been able to put forward in this, is that this is a text for you to learn about what are the giants in your life. This is a text to learn about how you slay them. This is a text that if you have these five pebbles who just happen to rotate into five life principles or something like that, there's a sense that then you too, for just $9.99, can slay your Goliath. Uh, that just is kind of the tone that you hit there, right, with that. Um, and it's not that there aren't things that we can learn, as we'll see from this text. It's not that there aren't things that we get to participate with, that we get to be formed in. But what I want to challenge us with today is the David and Goliath that I've just articulated that we might be under, that we might used to, is a very moralistic reading of the text. It's a very, what do I do? Um, how do I do this? What gets done for me? How do, how do I get to be uh, the hero of my own story? And as we've been going through this series, I hope what you've seen is this recognition that there's a lot of characters in the story. There is a lot going on in the story. There's a lot that reveals who God is. 
who we are in God, and there's a lot that reveals about who we are, where we're lacking, where we have strength, where we have need, whose strength, whose need, and those different dynamics. And Kevin set us up for this when he talked about Joseph, about even with Joseph, um, we have this tendency to always put ourselves in the hero's shoes. Now, I know Donny Osmond in the musical made that coat look amazing, but we're also not the hero of that story. And at least for me, I can't sing any well, so you don't want me to try to replicate that at all in any possibility, right? And so what I want us to take with us is as we go through this story, are we primarily seeing this as a moralistic tale or something that centers us on Christ as it foreshadows the coming, uh, the coming of Jesus, what Jesus does do, and how does that find itself in the larger narrative of Scripture? So where we're going to be today is 1 Samuel 17, um, which is where you'll find the story of David and Goliath. And just to give a little background about where we pick up, um, David here, there are some challenges uh, every once in a while when we dive into stories. Um, it's helpful, it's beneficial, but sometimes we pick characters up mid-formation, mid-reality, mid-experience, and there's some backstory that we might not be able to understand. And so before we pick up the battle of David and Goliath in chapter 17, um, that I said some of y'all, most of y'all will probably be familiar with or at least have a relevance of, prior to this in 16 and 15, some important dynamics have happened. Uh, Dave's a young, uh, young guy who's out with his um, sheep, tending to um, the needs of his family, a really scrawny-looking <laughs> looking guy. And before we get this battle of David and Goliath, um, Saul, who's the current king, who you'll meet here in the text in a little bit, uh, has fallen out of favor with God. And God regrets being able to put Saul in the position that he puts Saul in and tell, sends Samuel to be able to inform Saul of this reality. And Saul's, uh, Samuel's devastated. This was his hope. This was his excitement. Uh, and uh, God pretty much says, why are you sad? Take care of it. I have someone else here that you need to go and that you need to anoint as king. And so in chapter 16, we get that story. Um, we get that story that Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, another guy you'll meet here in just a minute, and looks over all of his sons, uh, and no one meets. Um, God's consistently like, nope, not that guy. Nope, not that guy. And then there's this little punk scrawny kid out feeding sheep, right, and taking care of the sheep, who, uh, who um, Samuel's like, are you sure there isn't anyone else? And there's like, oh, there's one more. And he comes forward. Lord's like, yes. Um, and so he's anointed. This isn't something that has much, uh, that has any public recognition at that time. Um, it's unclear who of all the brothers recognize what's going on. Um, and so this is what we get going into the, the selection that we're going to read from with uh, 1 Samuel 17, what has set David up now that he is going to be uh, facing Goliath. And so I'm going to pick up uh, in 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 4, and we're going to read through this, make some comments, um, read through a couple more sections, and then think about how does this form and inform our understanding of the gospel and where this is taking us. And so 17, starting with verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and, his shield bearer went, and a shield bearer went before him. Why have you come out to draw out for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man of yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, 
then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines, Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And a couple things out of this selection, um, before we continue on the story, that I think is important as we dive in, as we understand what's going on here, is that Goliath, in this whole first section, there's no recognition of God's work here. There's no recognition of we are an army of God. There's no recognition of we are a people of God. Uh, there is this notion, as, um, as Goliath says, are you not servants of Saul? It's not, aren't you servants of the Most High? Aren't you servants? Aren't you a people of God? Aren't you, are you servants of Saul? So Goliath just is in complete disrecognition or care that this somehow brings them any power. Um, and he flat out defies the ranks of Israel. And so what this would include is not only is he defying the ranks of Israel, but he's also defying the king. And if it is in the back of his head, the author may have just felt like it wasn't needed here, he would also be defying the people of who they are. So he's defying God, defying Saul, defying the people of Israel. And this freaks out. Obviously, you have this big guy, you heard him described, had this whole army. Freaks out Israel, and they were, greatly, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Saul's terrified, his people are terrified, and I don't know if any of y'all have ever experienced this. If the person who's giving you instruction, who's giving you leadership, is also terrified, you probably don't have that much confidence either. Uh, and you're like, what? What are we doing? We're doing this. You're not sure we're doing this, but you're going to send us to be doing that? Um, that gets a little bit uh, dynamic and a little bit uh, concerning. And so, again, here, like, Goliath makes no recognition of God. You don't even see Saul, the Israels, but yet we are God's people, but yet we are this, but this. Not even on their radar, at least not on the radar enough that the author feels like it's worth telling us about. We're going to continue on in the story um, with verse 12, uh, right after we just got on here with 11. So picking it up in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephorite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took the stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an FF of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your borders. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token to them. Last week, uh, Kevin made reference to this, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'll totally go ahead and throw myself on the table here is I think it's easy when you dive into scripture, either as a longtime reader of scripture, as a new reading of scripture, everyone's like, go to the gospels. And you get to the gospels, and you get to Matthew 1, and you get genealogy of Jesus Christ, and you're like, yeah, that's a lot of names I don't know, don't understand, don't know how to pronounce, and I'm just going to move on. Um, so I'm not the only one raising my hand. I'm not going to ask how many of you skip the genealogy of Jesus, because it's either going to be like, I don't want people to know that, or I'm going to feel really bad that I used to skip the genealogy of Jesus a lot. So it's a lose-lose situation for all of us here involved in that process. But the genealogy of Jesus is one of the most fascinating things that you can dive into, especially as we think about this larger story sermon series that we're involved in, this notion of the big story, how do things connect? Almost everyone, a lot of the people that we have referenced so far in this series find themselves in here or find someone that they're related to somehow or someone who is part of the story in this genealogy of Jesus. 
And Jesse and David are no different in this. And so Matthew, five, Matthew 1, 5 and 6 um, bring out both of these people involved here. Uh, and so Rahab, we just recently talked about her, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And so as we hear this story, as we see David continue to grow, to continue to take action, that's something that I want us to have in the back of our minds, that this is the Jesse and this is the David that end up in the genealogy of Jesus and get us to Jesus and have that understanding floating around as we learn more about who David is and how David took on Goliath and what does that have for us. Um, We're going to pick up back the story uh, in 1 Samuel uh, 17, verse 24, just to keep understanding. This is a long selection of text, but there's so many pieces in here that press into uh, the large reality of it. Um, Between uh, this text and the last text I read, uh, David had gone, um, left all the stuff with the keeper at the armies, and decided to go check out the battle himself. And so we're going to pick this back up in verse 24, uh, and it says... All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, and this is uh, Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. And again, we get this recognition from Israel, uh, from the people that they are afraid, they're terrified, they don't know how to stand up in front of them. They see no hope that they can somehow prevail over here. And then here comes David, who is just supposed to come, bring some stuff for his brothers, bring some snacks, uh, bring some rest, bring some encouragement, check in to see how they're doing, has gone up to the battle. And this is the first recognition that we get in this text that, hey, do you realize that in defying the ranks of Israel, in defying Saul, in defying us as a people, what Goliath has done at the same time? He has also defied uh, the armies of the living God. And so this is when that really starts coming into the story that David said, you know, though it doesn't quite work because this is the bully, he kind of has this like, hello McFly moment. Like, do you recognize that we are armies of the living God, that we are the people of the living God. And this is going to continue to catapult David into this story. Now, in the, in the meantime, in this little section here, um, before we pick it back up in 31, David has found his brothers. His brothers are really annoyed that their punk little brother came up and said, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? Why are you here? Don't, you know, you just are selfish and want to see the battle and experience it. But David's um, comments here about defying the living God have caught the attention of the army as a whole. And depending what, what his brothers realized from, Saul 16, or from Samuel 16 about his anointing, that might be playing some parts in here as their frustration as well. Um, long story short, David's words get to the whole army and get to Saul. And so in 31, um, we continue on with David's story against Goliath. It writes, uh, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear, 
and took a lamb for the flock, it went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like the one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of his Philist this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And so David again is reiterating to Saul, Do you recognize what he's done? Do you understand the depths of this? This isn't just this recognition of this physical confrontation. There is a depth to a spiritual confrontation that's going on here. So define, wanting to leave the people for dead is not just a, not just a, a, a critique or a hatred to those who are there, but also all that they represent. And Saul, it's hard to read in the text how much seriousness in this, but this has been Saul's backup to say, okay, go and the Lord be with you. Uh, there's, there's this recognition, there's this, again, this open de ultimate declaration that this is beyond a physical confrontation, but this is a spiritual one. And so he continues on, continues on in this journey as far as making his way to the Goliath, getting people to understand. And so we're going to pick it up again just right after in verse 38. And uh, then Saul clothed David with his armor. <coughs> Excuse me. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling, is had his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. When, uh, let's see this. Uh, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, and his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and he saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me stick? Come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give, you uh, give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the, God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give you to the dead bodies to the hosts of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. Then all the earth may know that there is a God of Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And there's a lot that happens in the selection of texts, and a couple of things that I just want us to bring out as we keep pressing through it is this, uh, uh, Saul gives David all the best armor, gives um, David, get him, and uh, one, of the, one of the commentators, and then in the footnote, talk about, imagine this like little scrawny sheep guy, can't see, can't move with this armor, like just going like this, trying to be able to do that. And then imagine then having to go up against a, a, a giant in that, not being able to actually use his skill, not being able to use what he told to Saul, saying, hey, I've been out, I've been with the sheep, I've taken on bears and lions, I've been equipped for this, I've been trained for this, I know what I can do, I know who God is, I know how God has equipped me to be able to handle this. And instead, Saul says, no, this is our way, this is our norm, this is how we do this, this is what's going on. And so I think it's just great, and something for us to have in front of us, that David says, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but just that recognition of 
what is it that we try to fix? What is it that we try to put forward? What is it that we're trying to do that's not actually something that we should be doing or prepared to do or can do? Uh, and David says, no, I know what I've been called here to do. I know where this trust is. I know um, the skill that I have been equipped and empowered in. Uh, Philistine uh, goes ahead and curses David by his gods. And so this is, again, David keeps leveling down. The Philistine comes back at him. And this recognition of the spiritual battle that's going on as, long as, as well as this physical confrontation. And David, again, never lets go of this. He, if anything, he comes more firm that I have come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled, for the battle is the Lord's. And I think it's important here for us to recognize that David at no point in this is boasting in himself or what he can do. He is boasting in who God is and what God can do and what God has set before him. There's just no recognition of, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. There's No, I am here on behalf of the armies of the living God. You need to recognize this. You need to see this. This is where the strength is formed. This understanding is coming from. And so the battle takes place. They go. David comes up. As you already saw, the Philistine mocks him, doesn't think anything of it. And Dave, uh, David comes up victorious against the Philistine. And we're going to pick up the conclusion of this story uh, in um, 17, 55 through 80, uh, 50, not 88, that would be insane. 55 through 58. And the, and the story continues on here. It says, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, and Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So David has defeated Saul. Um, Saul wants to know who is this kid. Um, he would probably know who David was, but who is this family line? Who is his lineage? Um, how, what is he comes from? And in this fitting of the story, as we've talked about, how does this foreshadow the gospel? How does this look ahead? How does this bring us to Jesus? I want you to think back to that reference to Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus, that Jesse finds himself here. But it goes beyond that. Um, and so in this um, selection of scripture, the fact that, that, uh, that, um, sorry, that David wants to conclude with this notion that I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite, is an important cap off to the story, not only because of the genealogy of Jesus, not only because that this shows us that this, but Jesse is also referenced in Isaiah 11, that out of, um, I'll just read it for you. Isaiah 11. Uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And there's this recognition that what is to come, this Messiah that's to come, that this Savior's to come, that this King's going to come, is going to be a stump, uh, is going to be a shoot off the stump of Jesse, that in comparison to what has come so far from the line of Jesse, that that is just a stump. That this, what is to come here, and I, I hope if you either, if we've sung it here, or if you've heard it on the radio, um, we've just recently ended the Christmas season, and before that, we have this beautiful season of Advent where we sit in anticipation of what is to come in the birth of Jesus. And one of my favorite Advent hymns, and sometimes I, I have to remember that maybe I'm a little bit of high church, so some of y'all might be like, Christmas hymn, you mean? And I'm like, no, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is an Advent hymn. It's not a Christmas hymn. And then that will end my high church a little bit right there, um, and we'll be done with it. 
um, there's this great verse in there where um, throughout the O Come, O Come, O Manual, um, and it's a verse that's often skipped, but it says, um, it says the great, uh, so O Come, O Come, O Manual, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save and give them victory over the grave. And so this recognition of Jesse, this declaration at the end of this story to say, I am Jesse, it connects us to the genealogy of Jesus. It shows that out of this is going to come something greater. And we can then see not only what we can learn from this story, but from a larger area of scripture about what we can learn from Jesus. That as David came on behalf of the Israelite armies, those that were scared, those that were terrified, those that wanted nothing to do with this, to slay Goliath, to be able to take on this army, then, pre then sends us down the road to seeing the work of Jesus on a much larger scale, on a much bigger scale, as we, no matter how much we would like to be, want to be that David that says, this is me, this is us, I'm going to do this, recognizing that David's story here is leading us to this much greater victory that's going to happen in Jesus. A much greater victory that even in comparison to what has come from Jesse's line is just a stump. And this is going to be a shoot off that. And so I hope maybe next time we come around, um, when you hear this song, you re if, they, if they sing this verse, there's this recognition that we, when we are declaring, when we are crying for God to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us, that we are longing for this, that we recognize the lineage of the story and where it has, where it has come out of. Um, and so that's just always been a great encouragement to me when I think about that final declaration that I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite, that it's not only saying that, well, this is who I am, but it is pointing us ahead, it is pointing us onward, um, as we have the ability to have the whole story of recognizing that this is what is to come. This is just a brief picture of the thing that is going to happen on a gigantic scale. And so as we've gone through this um, story of David, we see his um, declaration that this is uh, not just a physical battle here, but this is a battle of, of a spiritual level. Um, as we think and as we see that David then foreshadows us to Jesus and what Jesus is going to do, it is important still to recognize what are things that we can learn from this, what are things that we can glean from this out of the way that David modeled, who David points us to, uh, and all those different dynamics at play. And so for us, as we think about one of the things that we do when we wrap up our time together and dive into a little bit is go through some gospel application. Is these texts we read, some of the comments throughout, how does this point us to um, point us to how the gospel forms and informs us as Christians, both individually and collectively. And I think one of the things in comparison to the scared Israelites, the terrified Saul, to Goliath, who just doesn't have the time and day for what we're dealing with, we see this recognition that the question of whose battle is this? David, from beginning, clearly, clearly, continuously declares this notion of that this is God's battle. I am but a servant of the Most High. You have forgotten this. You're terrified. You're scared. You're not knowing what's going on, but we have to have trust and confidence and a recognition of whose battle this is. And so David again and again declares that this is the battle of the Lord. And for us as people who have access to the whole story of Scripture, who understand how is it supposed to speak to us, how do we understand how the Old and New Testament speak in, um, as Kevin and I were talking about this and as preparing for this, um, got brought to mind the notion of Ephesians 6. And Ephesians 6 10, 17, uh, 10 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the comic powers, 
over the, this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes of your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which is which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And so Paul here is also recognizing that this isn't just a physical battle we're facing. This is a spiritual battle. And how do we prepare ourselves? And whose battle is it? Is it our battle or the Lord's battle? But something that's important here, and as it links back to David's story, David was given all this armor, was given to be able to look the part, being able to do whatever it was. And he says, I have not tested this. I don't know this. So So Paul also instructs us that we can be prepared, but are we being prepared in our ways or in the ways of the Lord? Are we being prepared in our ways or the ways of the Lord that we test these, that we put these on, that we sit with them, that we understand the fact that we are up against uh, not just uh, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of the uh, present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. And therefore, prepare yourself. Put on the whole armor of God. Preparing ourselves isn't saying that the battle is ours. It's a recognition of whose the battle is and what's our call into that. How's our call to respond to that? And so a recognition of the fact that we say that this is not our battle. This battle is God's. And how is God calling to equip us? How is God calling to prepare us in the midst of it? What I don't want you to hear is, well, it's God's battle. Okay, let's see what, um, if I have a new notification on my phone or a new whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's a recognition of where does your confidence and strength come from? Who is it that you're trusting? Are we trusting ourselves? Are we trusting God? And then how is that trust shaping and forming how we prepare and how we are present in this? So whose battle it is. Secondly, what we see from David and David's story and David's trust and confidence and who God is and who God has called his people to be is that our boldness and confidence come from standing firm in Jesus, not ourselves. That we stand firm in Jesus, that we stand firm in the gospel. And without a faith rooted in Jesus' victory, honestly, the only chance we have is to stand with the terrified Israelites. Because we don't know the goodness in which we have. We don't know the life in which we have. We don't know the salvation that we have. We don't know what it is that allows us to tackle on the, the, the whatever the world is bringing us here. And while I was thinking about this, that I think it's important that when we have this conversation, not only do we re- need to remember that just because of whose battle it is doesn't mean that we don't have to do stuff, that we don't have to be prepared, but it's where are we rooted, where are we formed. Similarly, a notion of that our boldness and confidence come from standing firm in Jesus, not herself, doesn't mean things aren't going to be hard. It doesn't mean things aren't going to be challenging. Not every situation is necessarily going to go like, look, I just took on this huge giant (laughs) in my life. It might be a multi-year thing. It might be a couple-week thing. It might be a continued lifelong struggle. There are things that I've consistently begged, like, how can I defeat this? And they still continue to be present. And wondering, like, okay, but how do I stand firm Jesus in the midst of that? Apostle Paul, listing off um, the triumph of Christ and the glory of the gospel, and in light of the gospel, how we are to live in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, um, 8 and 9, says that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, And there's this recognition for any of you who are having a really hard time getting trading of sorrows out of your head right now, if you grew up in certain church sections or in camp, 
I'm sorry, but the truth here in 4, 8 through 9 is this notion that there are going to be hardships, there are going to be challenges, there are going to be frustrations, there are going to be things that bring pain. But in the midst of that, where are we standing firm? Where does our boldness and confidence come from? Where does our understanding of what we trust and who we are and whose we are comes from? And how do we keep the gospel in front of that? So by no means when I say, and our belief in the gospel and our boldness and confidence comes from standing firm in Jesus, I am not saying that that means things are going to be easy and fun and great and wonderful the whole time. But it's a recognition about when things are hard, when things are challenging, when we are struck down, where do we stay rooted? Where does that confidence come? Where does that boldness to persevere despite being struck down coming from? It's also in our belief in the gospel that we are more than conquerors. So even when things are hard, there is this, uh, there is this willingness that through Jesus, through uh, acceptance of Jesus, through pressing into that, that, that we are able to have access to victory, which allows us to stand more confident and stand bold uh, in the declaration there. Apostle Paul, again, in Romans writes, and, and now here's, a, I was going back and forth whether I was going to do this. I'm going to need to take a time out from the message just real quick to let you know something, that part of leading with people is also being vulnerable with people. And so some of you know that I grew up in the South, and if you don't know that, all you need to know is that I say y'all continuously, and I have probably a good percentage in the Krebs Kids College Scholarship Fund needing sweet tea. So they're welcome. They can thank me for that later. So I grew up in the South, but also sometimes growing up in the South means you say things really funny, right? And you can't do that. And I really wanted to use this text, and I read through this text. I got really sad. So here's a very vulnerable moment. When it gets to, um, uh, let's see, in order to make, prepare, let's see. Okay, let's just say it. I can't stay naked. I can't do it. Okay? I just can't. That's how I say it. I was born in the South. Every time I get stuck with a scripture that says naked in it, everyone loses track of what I'm preaching about because everyone's trying to be polite and not laugh at me. You can talk to my South Carolina formation about this. There's nothing I can do about it, okay? So I want you to get the depth of Romans 8 here and the truth of it. And when that word comes around, just know that's how I'm going to say it. Cool? Great, grand, wonderful. All right. So our belief in the gospel gives us access to this recognition, to this reality that we are more than conquerors. And so Romans 8, starting with 31, says, When then shall we say to these things, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or perseverance, or famine, or nakedness, our danger, our sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is what we have that opportunity to stand firm in, to stand confident in, to stand in when all these things come in. Again, that does not mean that they aren't going to be hard. That doesn't mean that there isn't accountability. That doesn't mean that things need to get called out. doesn't mean we passively just accept everything that comes. But that means that we stand firm, that we let the gospel form and inform how are we being present to these realities? How are we acting to them? How are we being formed to them? And lastly, on this point, um, before we get into the last uh, gospel application, 
is it, it was funny that this quote kept going through my mind when I was uh, when I was preparing for this and reading through this. Is I spent several years being inundated with the work of Martin Luther to the point that I had no care for the reformer. I'm like, I just don't want to read anything by Luther, uh, <laughs> Luther anymore. It was everything that I was uh, being given to read. But out of this thing came a quote that has really just been ingrained in me forever that I've never been able to shake in some of our journeys, some of the healings that we've gone through, some of the experiences um, that I keep in, keep in the process of working through. And when we think about our access to be able to stand with Jesus, and more importantly, Jesus' ability and desire and willingness and his work to stand with us, these words from Luther have really stuck with me. He writes, So when the devil throws your sin in your faces and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there, I shall be also. And where he is there, I shall be also. Our boldness and confidence come from standing firm in Jesus. And lastly, as we think about David, as we think about what he, what, what he shows us, how he puts us ahead to Jesus, but also what is it about David in that situation that we can glean from and learn from, it's not problematic to recognize the giants in our life. It's not problematic to say, this is what I'm struggling, how do I come against this? What's problematic when we recognize that we don't need anyone else but us to be able to face the giants in our life. So as we undo the norm, as we rethink the text, I don't want us to think that we don't need to articulate that, we don't need to do that. But what I do want to ask, and this isn't as much to expound on, but for us to chew on, for us to work through, is how do the giants of our lives, individually and corporately, reveal our dependence, our lack thereof, in the gospel? How do the giants of our life, individually and corporately, reveal our dependence, our lack thereof, in the gospel? Where is it that we aren't standing firm in the gospel? Where is it that we aren't allowing that to transform our lives, to be able to call it? And I want this, one of the most important things that I want in this question, no matter how important they both are, is to recognize that these are both individually and corporately. How is this something that's you individually? How is this something you corporately? Corporately as a family, corporately as a church, corporately as all these dynamics, because I would attest that there's very few historic assaults that have impacted the local church worse than the individuality that we're obsessed with. And not only has society played into that, but we as a church who have played into that. I mean, even just as we think, as you turn on the radio, just count the amount of times that you hear me and I. But what about the we's and the us's? The me's and the eyes are important and part of this story, and if anything, being able to get right with that allows you to be able to be a part of this collective, collective body, but also the corporate is important. So how are the giants in your life individually revealing your dependence or lack thereof, but also corporately? As a married couple, as a family, as a member of a church community, how can we fight for a holistic dependence on the gospel? And so for that, just to be able to sit with that through this week, to be able to be challenged to that, to recognize what are these things and where is the gospel shaping and forming them? How is that speaking to that? How am I allowing to speak to it? Do I even want to talk about it? Because it's Minnesota and it's winter, and even if it's a mild winter, Minnesotas have a hard time talking to each other in the first place sometimes. But then winter makes it even more difficult. And so are we actually wanting to press into these things? Because I can tell you, and I know, I know from my own experience, that it is so easy to say, hey, I'm here. Okay, did my check mark, now I'm going, and I'm done. And that's one of the reasons that we value both gospel and community here, and mission, for that matter, 
is the recognition that this is a holistic call that you have accepted to then follow Jesus. And so what does that mean to recognize that? Not just how does the gospel inform the way of, you know, dear Lord, please give me small talk because I'm so awful at small talk for this community time. If you want to go talk about maybe if there's a multiverse or the different understandings of, like, the Bible, I would love to do that, but you can't really do that in seven minutes, so I have to, like, continuously pray how to be part of the community. Can you just give me some small talk? I just can't, I can't do it. Well, just topless of vulnerability there because y'all are going to think I'm crazy in a lot of ways. But this is an individual and corporate call that we get to be part of as a church. And that's, that's, that's a mess. That's a challenge. And I, 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 I do want to share this story real briefly, and then we'll wrap up, is that one of the things that I was thinking of um, when Kevin and Michael asked me if I wanted to come on and do some administrative help uh, with Center Church, and even pr- op- opportunity to be able to do this or things like that, surprisingly, one of the things, and I was talking to a couple students about this that don't want to deal with a conflict in their church, one of the things that is most exciting for me about that prospect is not that I hope there's ever any dynamics or challenges between Kevin and I. I mean, we're human, we're broken, right? At the same time, but here's the deal, is I chose to be able to collaborate and partner with someone who lives two blocks away from me. If something happens, we have to figure it out, right? Like, we have to figure out how the gospel speaks into that. How do we be able to reconcile? How do we be able to avoid conflict? It's not a stretch to say that 80% of the church doesn't have to do that. Because within walking distance from here, there's five churches. Within driving distance, you can do that 10 or 15. So this isn't just an individual call on your life to figure out how the gospel informs. How does it also do it corporately? How do we press, how do we challenge one another to be able to actually press into that reality? And it's scary. But it's also really exciting because that means that we don't just get to go and leave and deal with whatever we're dealing with in, this, in, in the dynamics. Um, whatever it is that we need to wrestle with, whatever we need to do, you don't have to do that alone. You get to be part of a community to do that. And that's just one of the greatest good news of the gospel for me is not only that do we get to be able to access Jesus standing with us individually, but we get to access Jesus standing with us corporately as a body, as a people, and we get to be representatives of that good news to one another. Um, so amen to that. <laughs> uh, when the worship team comes up here, there's going to be an opportunity in the back to celebrate uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, a time to recognize, uh, and for me, there is not much more of a dual individual and corporate act than the Lord's Supper. You have an opportunity to be able to come in a recognition of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, and a recognition, and I know that sometimes this is challenging, as I see a St. Louis Cardinals fan over here in Landon, to recognize that that was done for him and for me as well, right? That that was done for all of us. In any, any area, that is a very dumb, comical, non-bothering way. But I d- it's, not, it's not a trick, it's not even a stretch to say how polarized we are as a society right now, right? But here's the deal. Any conflict, anything that we're coming, anything we need to press into with brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come to that table, when you come up to them, when you talk to them, when you share with them, you are seeing someone that Jesus did what he did for you for them, right? That you're seeing that the promises that you were able to receive in that bread, in that cup, were also received for the person that you're not that excited with right now. That you get to take that together. And so not only are we recognizing in this for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, that this is a recognition of what Christ has done for me. It's also a recognition of what Christ has done for us. And it has to, has to, has to change and transform continuously in process the lenses in which we see one another with. And so as the worship team comes up and play, that is something that's available for you in the back. 
Um, I know Kevin and myself would love to talk as well if there's anything that anyone wants to talk or pray about. And um, yeah, amen.